vicissitudes of life and the um the rescue or the um the true remedies for our suffering lies squarely within our our purview to to access if we really get or understand uh, how to access it and the development that's required to to access to access our freedom and uh, so today I thought because this is a hard teaching and I want you to know it's not me <laughs> that uh, I'm going to give my uh, what you might call my authority to share it in this way so that you don't think that I'm just you know coming up with something uh, on to the um, what causes our our um, suffering, which is agitation or gratification, agitation or gratification, you know, both causes suffering. So when the mind is distressed, there is suffering. And when the mind is happy, then the mind is also disturbed. And I'd like to try to tie that into the heart. In 19, in the 1960s, we started doing heart transplants. In 1991, and we thought like by now we know everything there is to know about the heart and how the heart functions and we're pretty good at, you know, taking one out and dropping one in and, and all of that. But in 1991, something, uh, uh, there was a further discovery about the heart that has to do with the vagus nerve and, uh, and, uh, uh, and also the nerves that move down the spine. And what they discovered was that, uh, we actually have two brains. One is in the head and one is in the heart. And that the information transfers between the heart and the head. And there can be a, a, uh, a unification of the head and heart with learning or with development. But they also discovered that the communication flowing from the head to the heart is about a quarter of what flows from the heart to the head. And that's why the mystics and the sages of old continually deal with us about uh, cultivating the heart. That's why uh, compassion and altruism is in every um, wisdom teaching. Uh, and that the head uh, is part of our uh the the cells of the brain are part of our evolutionary um, uh, development uh, concerned mostly around survival. And so we find our truest self in, uh, in the heart. And so many of us have difficulty um, connecting the heart to the head because the heart uh, Another way to, to kind of, of understand it, not completely, but partially, is around intuition. And typically, intuition has been seen or understood as a feminine aspect, a girly quality, and, uh, and has been, uh, not it had not been investigated appreciated and anything that happens that bears out to be true having arisen from the heart we consider anecdotal until 1991 
and I'll tell you what um, what happened in 1991 was from time to time when they would do heart transplant, someone would like wake up and say, I want Kentucky Fried Chicken, but they never ate like that, okay? And so, um, and then there was, uh, it started with the woman who did that, and she went and tried, you know, because they, the, the, uh, the organ is anonymous, is anonymously donated, but she tracked down where she got her heart from through obits and, you know, and it was a small town and on and on. And they found out that the guy that she got the heart from, that was his main diet, Kentucky Fried Chicken. So that one was like the beginning of these anecdotal, you know, uh, collection of stories around heart transplant uh, patients or recipients. But then something extraordinary happened. There was an eight-year-old, and she got the heart of a 10-year-old girl. And this girl had been uh, murdered. And they discovered her. They heard her screaming in the woods. By the time somebody got to her, you know, the assailant was gone, and she was dead. Uh, her parents donated her organs. They rushed her off and dismembered her or whatever they do to get the parts that they need to, for someone who is alive. And that was, that was the end. But this girl started having nightmares. And they took her to um, a therapist um, because of the nightmares. And the therapist recognized that this wasn't a nightmare, that this was a memory. And they brought in a forensic sketch artist and she began to tell the story of this nightmare she'd have every every two or three nights. And um and it was the story about where they found her. Then they went on uh, like this man chasing her in the dark and she's running towards this house and she's almost there but before she can get there, you know, uh, and she, the man says something to her before he kills her, and she was re saying what the man said, uh, and then she saw the man's face, and she described it, and they sketched it out. Okay, so from that sketch, unbeknownst, of course, to the girl and her family, in the beginning, they began to search their databases and they came up with a match. And when they brought this guy in for, you know, uh, questioning with a little bit of pressure, he confessed. And he told the story and it was the same story this little girl was, was dreaming. And, uh, he used the exact same words before he killed her that the little girl told her in her dream this man says and on the basis of that and it was the first case in all in criminal history that a person was uh you know accused tried convicted and sentenced on a basis like this but the evidence was so overwhelming and then in conjunction with his confession when he confessed he didn't know these other things you know or maybe he would have had a different, you know, the 
the trial could have gone differently. But uh, that was it. So now science is paying attention. And that's when they started investigating further. And that's not like these things just got there, like the vagus nerve just got there. Or like this bundle with the, with the, they have 40, uh, a special, uh, specialty of cell that's in the heart that is like a brain cell, but it's in, in the heart. And so there's a, uh, a, a Christian um, saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why I listen very carefully when people speak. You know, and if they come back and say, well, I didn't mean it, you know, or I didn't mean it like that, you know, I know that it's out of the abundance of the heart. It overwhelms. It makes us oops. Uh, it makes us uh, speak up when we, you know, when maybe we should have held our peace and counted to 10 or something. But it's a good indicator because it is the eruption, you know. And so the Buddha understood this and he gave us training whereby if the heart has been wounded, or, or, or hurt, there is a training we can undergo to transform that heart. And then the heart will send a different survival a message to the brain. Is everybody with, is everybody with me? Okay. So I wanted to go a little bit into how he talked about, how he talked about it. Because when we get this and when we look at the languaging around the way he spoke might be different than the scientific data and the proofs that they've uh, discovered uh, concerning the, the 40 cells in the heart that communicate three times more to the brain than the brain sending a message uh, to the heart, which is why it's so difficult, uh, say, to forgive if your survival has been threatened or you feel that you've been threatened in a certain way, like I'm trying to love them, though. I'm trying to forgive them, though. It's, it's difficult. Uh, it takes longer. It takes more effort because the messaging coming top down to the heart is so much less than what's, uh, what is uh, uh possible to move from the heart uh, to the head and so that takes a cultivation and that takes uh there takes a uh a training and so i'd like to start with what he says about the speaker of the of the dharma he says um I'll skip the introductions that I usually read. Sitting to one side, that bhikkhu said to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, it is said a speaker on the Dharma, a speaker on the Dharma. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one a speaker on the Dharma? He said, Bhikkhu, if one teaches the Dharma for the purpose of revulsion towards form, feeling, perception, consciousness and mind objects for it for their fading away in cessation one can be called one who is a speaker on the dharma 
if one is practicing for the purpose of revulsion towards form, feeling, perception, consciousness, and mind objects, one can be called one who is practicing in accord with the Dharma. If through revulsion towards form, feeling, perception, consciousness, and mind objects, through their fading away and cessation, one is liberated by non-clinging, one can be called one who has attained Nibbana in this very life. So now when we start talking about revulsion for form, already there's some backlash. Brain is talking, you know, uh, or about our thoughts or about our uh, feelings or, you know, or our perception of things. Brain is already going with the yeah, but, you know, don't we need this, you know, to be able to function in this world? I mean, it's, it's, um, we have all of our objections. And so he starts to, speak uh, to us, and, and I want to give it to you from here instead of my conversation today, um, because I want you to, to, to really get the Buddha's thread. He said, because this samsara is without discoverable beginning, a first point cannot be found of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. He said, suppose, Bhikkhu, a dog tied to a leash was bound to a strong post. If it walks, sits close to that post or pillow. If it stands, it stands close to that post or pillow. If it sits down, it sits down close to that post or that pillow. If it lies down, it lies down close to that post or that pillow. So too, because the uninstructed worldling regards form as this is mine, this I am, this is myself, just as the dog who is tethered on a leash, bound up to a strong post or a strong pillow. And he regards perceptions and volitional formations and consciousness the same way. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. And if he walks, he walks close to his concern for those five aggregates or his sense of identity tied up in those five aggregates. If he stands, he stands close to his identity being tied up in his form, in his feeling, in his perception, in his consciousness, in his mind, in his thoughts. He says that if he sits down, he sits down close to being, uh, to clinging to those five aggregates. And if he lies down, he lies down close to clinging. Therefore, because one should reflect often upon one's own mind thus for a long time, This mind has been defiled by craving, by hatred, by delusion, and through the defilements of minds, the being becomes defiled. With the cleansing of mind, the being becomes purified. And so he talks about this non-self, and he says form is non-self. Feeling is non-self. Consciousness is non-self. Mental formations, non-self. Perception is non-self. And so one says, so the question came up, well, how can you know anything apart from 
being tied to these five aggregates. And how can you know something else if we are tied to the five aggregates? And he said, um, destruction of the taints is only for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and who does not see. He needs to know such is form, such is its origin, such is its passing away. And the same for the four other aggregates. When one does not dwell devoted to development, even though such a wish may arise in him, oh, that my mind might be liberated from the taints by non-clinging, he said it is impossible to do. And so our development depends, or our progress depends on our development. Our development depends on the effort that we put into it. And part of that effort is the, uh, the effort of overcoming or moving against our habitual tendency, our habitual way of viewing, our habitual, habitual way of knowing, our habitual way of acting, our habitual way of saying or doing or thinking or being. That's what this practice is. I mean, like, if you don't want to do that, then this is not the right practice. There's many, 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 many other types of, of practices that you can, can do. But he speaks of where this teaching fits within that framework of the many different, uh, practices, training, spiritual development that we can, can undertake. He said, I teach you the things that should be fully understood. He said there are some things that are partially understood, and that part that is partially understood will have good benefit and be of good value, but the release, the relief, the ultimate overcoming is not possible because it has not been fully understood. He said, I teach you the things that should be fully understood, full understanding, and the person that has fully understood. He said, listen to that. And what is full understanding? It is the destruction of craving, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called full understanding. Sometimes when we're working on breaking down something in ourselves, we know like we got a stony heart around this issue, you know, but then we start looking at like what is, what is right. But the thing is that if I'm trying to do what is right out here and in that process, I recognize a stoniness of heart in here, I need to leave that and I need to work with, I need to work with this. This is where the work then needs to be done. You know, now if I can do what needs to be done out there and my own heart doesn't rise up and condemn me, I'm on a, I'm on a good space. I should move forward with that. But when the heart does rise up, then we need to stop right where we are and tend with it because the work that we do might even be a good work, but the work is still defiled. The work will still not have its complete work. You know, the efforts, the good that we would do, we would not be able to do, you know. And so if everyone had this understanding, what a wonderful world <laughs> it would be. But because we don't, whatever parts we do understand, you know, we are invited to to walk in that, 
to act on that. You can see this is a great responsibility. You can't be a Paul Parrot with this and make any progress or get anywhere. You know, it's not so much the outer knowledge that we get, but this is man knowing thyself. And he says that when we turn inward, most of us abandon when we get to a certain part because too much is asked of us by ourselves. You know, if we really want to be free, you got to work on that. Like, ah, you know, I'm willing to do this, this, and this, but not right now. Not right now for that. And that's okay. But just know. Just know, and we don't have to hide it, we don't have to deny it, we, but we do have to acknowledge it within ourselves. We have to just know. You see, there's no danger in just knowing. There's no danger in acknowledging to oneself. It's not a beat down. It's not a flagellation. It is a recognition from a space that puts us on a trajectory for total release. And so the good news about this is that it is available to us. But it's available to us to the extent that we are willing to cultivate and to and to develop to develop it. And so he says I understand why you feel like you feel uh sometimes And he said it's because of gratification. He said, if there were no gratification in form, beings would not become enamored with it. But because there is gratification in form, beings do become enamored with it. If there were no danger in form, Beings would not need to experience revulsion towards it. But because there is danger in form, beings experience revulsion towards it. If there were no escape from form, beings would not escape from it. But because there is escape from form, beings can escape. From it, and he went on to talk about gratification in feeling, in perception, in consciousness, in in thoughts, in and volitional for, formations. So it says, for so long as beings have not directly, directly known as they really are, the gratifications as gratifications, the dangers as dangers, the escape as escape, then they have not escaped from this world with its devas, Mara, Brahmas, from this generation of ascetics, from Brahmins, its humans, because we have not become detached from it, released from it, nor do we dwell with a mind rid of barriers. But when we have really known all this as it really is, when we have let down our guard of fear, well, if if I give this up, who shall I be in the future? If I give this up, what will happen to me now in the present? You know, it's always something with something. I got a call this morning, and, and the person has to have, um, well, they wanted her to have open heart surgery, and she, she's, um, 
she was in a in a tizzy and she said i absolutely won't have it i absolutely won't have it and i went back and i told him i won't i won't have it i just can't do it i can't do it so then they called me back today that was a couple of weeks ago they called me back today and said they looked over my things and i am a candidate for a second type of surgery that would be a little bit less invasive than cracking open your chest and uh it it and it would be done they would send a a Excuse me, a, tube, a tube up through the groin, and now she said, "I can't do it." I just, I said, "So, so, what are you saying? Are you calling me to make your funeral arrangements, or you know, what is it that you're asking me, asking me for?" You know, and she said, "She said, um, she said, no, I don't want to die." I said, "Okay then, well, okay, we got that part settled, okay." And so then we started talking about. I said, "You know, you're thinking." She says, "But." I'm worried. I said, what are you worried about? She said, what I'll be like in the future. I said, what you need to worry about is what you like right now. And right now, they're telling you you won't have a future unless unless you do this. And so the the pain and the anguish that you're in right now, the breathing mechanism that you complain about, the chest pains, the fear, all of that is right now. And so I said, if you could not be so attached to your views, to your future pacing of what I'll be like in the future, don't you see this could be something I just have to do? It could be as easy as going to the store. Just like when my father died, the voice spoke and said, I can make this as easy as going to the store for you. I said, if you can make it so. And it was just like that. And there was never any suffering, any anguish. And I loved him more than I loved my husband. Uh, but there was something that rose up. I called it the voice of the Holy Spirit. Somebody else might call it intuition. Somebody, you can call it something. You don't have to call it anything. Don't care. But the problem, the, 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 the thing is that this thing arose in that moment and I was able to take a little bit of that wisdom and use it to get me over something. They said, she's going to have a nervous breakdown for sure. I absolutely did not. And that's why the Buddha says when he talks about walking, walking with householders and said one who understands things this way, he doesn't walk with householders. What he means he doesn't think the way householders, he doesn't think the way householders think because a householder's life is consumed with what we'll eat, what we'll wear, you know, um, where we'll go, what we'll do. It's consumed with relationships. It's consumed with careers. It's consumed with one-upmanship. It's consumed with these things. And it's hard to kick against the pricks. It's hard to uh, cultivate the kind of mind that could relax and release these things. When I went to the doctor the day before yesterday, he he took my um, my pressure down. Ten years ago when I first started going to, to him, or 12 years ago, I was uh, earlier in my, you know, you like you kind of go like an airplane moving on a tarmac, you know, and you, you have to get up to a certain speed, and then you have to pull back, you know, on the rudder and the, I forget now, it's been a long time, ailerons, I was taking flying lessons, and um, and you, and when you do all the things, you have to have thrust to, to, to have lift, you know, you have to have a certain speed. You know, there's a number of conditions must be present. Any one of them 
then you either will not have lift, or if you have lift, you will have have quickly come down. All these things have to be in the right proportions and the right amount. But when you have it, then then you have lift, and that's why the theory or or the side the truth of aerodynamics supersedes, or the law of aerodynamics supersedes the law of of gravity. Supersedes it. It doesn't nullify it. But it can operate in a way that surpasses or or suppresses the law of gravity when all the conditions have been met. So in the beginning, we don't meet all the conditions. And sometimes doing the things that will allow us to grow and develop, they, it, frankly, it doesn't feel good right now. Rob said to me so many times, like, I'm not feeling good about you right now. All this week while he was in, I think he might have, did you use the H word? I'm hating you right now. You know, uh, and but he kept persevering. He kept persevering. He kept pressing through the uncomfortableness uh, because we have our, our safeguards, our our tendencies, the things that we do, so that we won't feel um, what you know to to uh, dismiss or suppress the feeling that we don't want to have. And so, part of this is being able to come to the place that we can tolerate the feeling, seeing it only as a feeling. It is not me. And it is temporary. It's going to pass the same way it came up. It arose, it abides, and it passes. And how long it abides uh, depends on the amount of clinging that we have and the amount of craving uh, for something else and the amount of aversion towards this. And so this is a, 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 a practice of noticing when that clinging is there, when that aversion is there, when that gratification is saying yippee and doing somersaults that make us press down and say, yeah, this is me. I did this. It's a, it's noticing that. Now, the Buddha says that when all of that has been uh, suppressed for little periods of time, we start to find out that there's no danger in those waters. In fact, there is some kind of, of uh, experience that even surpasses the gratification and the pleasure, the temporary pleasures that these normal ways of being give us. He says, but we think like this is such a good feeling. I don't want anything else. He said, but there is something even greater than that. There's something even, and that it can be apprehended here and now. And when one enters into that space, it is called Nibbana. So, and he says this by way of con uh, co to give confidence to try to put these things to the test. He asks us to do something. He talks about uh, what it takes to be able to get in to that uh, into that space. Uh, and listen to what it takes. Of all the things that the Dharma talks about, he says. There the Blessed One said this, bhikkhus, develop concentration. A bhikkhu who is concentrated can understand things as they are. And what does he understand 
as it really is, the origin and passing away of form, the origin and passing away of feeling, the origin and the passing away of perception, the origin and the passing away of volitional formations, the origin and the passing away of consciousness. So he gives us one little simple thing to do, and he shows us like the doorway into this place where we come to the absolute stilling of thought and where all sense of uh, uh, all understanding of how things are based on the information we've taken in through the sense gates, what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think, all of that falls away and then we enter into a different uh the fullness of reality and there is something that enters into that fullness it is not a nothingless like nothing there is a something and there are no words for the something, but it can be experienced. And once one experiences it, one knows, even when one comes out and just acts awful, if they have touched it, they've tasted it, they know there is an abiding place where this one who can be consumed by the vicissitudes of life can enter. And they have a different vision of what it is to be alive in the world. And the more often they touch that fount, the more often they touch that space, the more equipped they become to not only handle the vicissitudes of life, but to not even consider them vicissitudes. You know, they are just, it's just, it's just, life and so they can go through up times and down times the same so when i so 10 or 11 years ago might have been 12 years ago when i first found this doctor i was going to and i had hypertension and you know and he wanted to put me on this medication and everybody's on it they're not doing good but like what you're gonna do you know and i and i i tried it and i didn't like it it made me sick i said i can't do this he said well what are you gonna do i said i'm gonna use my proved weapons i'm gonna i'm gonna master this meditation thing now i'm still working on it you know it's not mastered um but that's what I did. So he said, you know, I just wanted to tell you. Uh, I wanted to ask you what you do about uh, your pressure, you know, and how you brought your pressure down. Some he said, life must be going good for you. I said, I'm in the. This is I'm in the most stressful time of my life right now. I can tell you the truth. That is really the truth. And I said, uh, I said, but it sits there, and that's. That's life. So there's a place that it can come close, but it can't touch me because I practice abandoning the self that's based on form, feel, and perception, consciousness, and mind objects. He said, he said, can you tell me more about this? You know, because my pressure is something like, uh, I think it was today, it was uh, yesterday, it was one. 112 over over 70 and it used to be something like like 
220 over um over 100 or or you know I mean I, I was like right there I was right there on the edge and I didn't come to the dharma for that that was like dharma was like a spiritual pursuit and health was health you know I didn't come because I wanted to be healthy I didn't come because I didn't want to stress I wanted to come because I wanted to be like Jesus and I didn't know any Christians who were so I said okay what we do now is you don't ask a disciple what the master meant you go find another master and ask that master what that master was talking about maybe he can explain it to you in another way that you can get it and so that's what I did I was seeking another master and I want to look at the way he said it to see like what I might have missed, you know, from from what Je- Jesus said. You know, I was like, Jesus, I ain't got no problems with you. It's these people I got a problem with, you know. And then so then I go to the bully. He said, No, you don't have a problem with them. It's you you have a problem with. And and so now he's he's pointing me here. It might be somebody tells me about something else after this. But first I'll work at mas- mastering this. And so so I talked to him a little bit more. And then I said, oh, You're not charging me right for this. I mean this conversation. <laughs> Uh, because they bill you, you know, they bill you on your, you know, and, and I know because I get the bills, I look at them and, and, you know, I'm like, wow, he's gone up, you know, so, so I generally don't ask too many questions. I Google. And when I go in, I go in armed with equipment. I'm asking him the questions, you know, um, so anyway, so he, we talked about something that he felt could help me get, um, uh, get my diabetes under control um, and he said, I think you could do it once and for all where you'd be off, not, you know, be off completely, you know. And this, just two years ago, this was a doctor telling me, once a diabetic, always a diabetic. You know, I was like, no, I don't believe that. It's just I'm not disciplined enough to do the things that I need. And I'm not going to work on that this year either. So give me the medicine. Next year, I'm going to work on it. So that's this year I'm, I'm ready to work on it. So I went and I talked to him about doing a 30 day uh, water fast because I did one before and everything went wonderful. He said, Panjwadi, he said, I, I would never encourage a person to do a 30 day fast, but you, I know you can do one. He said, but here's the problem. It's after you get off the 30-day fast. It wasn't six months before your diabetes was back where it was before you did the fast because you didn't do the things afterwards that you needed to maintain your health. So he said, I will approve a 30-day fast. I know you're going to do it anyway if you want to do it. But the question is, what do you need to think about what you're going to do after the 30 days. Last time, on day number 30, when I ended that fast, I went and had a full course meal. I didn't do that like you got to like do soups, uh, clear stuff. I went and had full course meal. Pandeep said, you're going to die. I said, no, I'm not. I've been waiting 29 days for this and I'm ready. And, and so, so then he said, would, would you mind talking with, um, okay. He said, I have some, other clients and they meditate you know he said but I don't know what kind of meditating they're doing but they might be interested in hearing about the kind you're doing I said yeah I will I will do that he said okay well let me call them and I'll get back to you but this is my advice that they might want now what encouraged me was after my fall and I'm saying I'm saying this to show you how you should evaluate things going on in your life and the role that the Dharma should be taking in your in your life it's not just something to hear a, a, 
a few hours a week and then we just go on with our life. But it ha- we have to really integrate it into our every moment. There's hardly a moment that goes by that I'm not thinking about what the Dharma says about this moment and what's showing up. And I might rise to the occasion and I might fail. I might not. But there's not a time I'm not thinking about it. And not, again, I say with a sense of condemnation, but the sense of having a friend that sticks closer than a brother right there with me, rising up in my heart, gently nudging, talking, instructing, saying, you can do that, but it's going to hurt. Not today, but next week. So just and, and then leaving me to make my choice you know it's it's like that when you come to know the dharma in this way you know it takes on a different quality and your life takes on a different quality even when you fail at your best attempts or even if you're not up to attempting uh so he said um concentration and the way he leads us into this concentration. It's so simple that we think it's not even worth anything. We think it's not valuable. First he says, we think, oh, we have this monkey mind. We're so distracted by this and this and this and this and this. He says, before we practice concentration, we live vicariously through that. That's all we've known. How to evaluate what's happening right now based on what I see here, taste, touch, smell, and think. You know, that's my litmus for evaluating the moment. He said, but once you start, embark upon the eightfold path. He says, one needs to uh, investigate what is right thought. And right speech. You know, what is right meditation? And what is, you know, right concentration? What is right view? What is right? And so we undergo the study. Once we have studied what it is, how do that I apply that to myself and to my life, to this moment? When I'm feeling like just knock one person out, you know, how do I, how do I pull back? How do I restrain myself when I'm thinking about uh, a world on fire? How do, how do I console myself when my partner is dying? How do I, you know, how do I go on and get up the next morning, um, and move forward in the world when my relationship is dissolving. How do I? You know, that's the question. And the Dharma needs to answer those questions for you. And when they have been answered for you, when you have found the path, if you stay on the path, all of those get great. Here's the good thing about it. It doesn't just, I play this game. I'm trying to improve my my mind, my sense of of logic and stuff because of the uh, concussions that I had. And and so there's some games, if you learn the strategy, if you push this button, it uh, destroys or blows up that one square. You push this button, 
if others are around it in a certain way and it blows up 20 squares. So you can either get one point or you can get 20 points and the object is to get the most points. So you're always looking to see where I can blow up the most squares with one button. But the Dharma is like that. When you get something with the Dharma, you can apply it here, 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 and here. And, you know, so it's not like, boy, this is a trudging way. One thing at a time. It's not like that. Because our whole view and the way information is organized shifts. So the whole, uh, uh, the structure of appearances change for us. And we no longer think of something this way. We think of something a different way. So when you come back to a person and say, well, I didn't do this because I felt shame. I didn't do this because I was angry. I didn't do this because I, and we can come up with any one of those that we want, you know, but the reason what hindered us was our, our clinging to and our attachment to our sense of whatever, shame, anger, jealousy, whatever. And so he says, allow there to be that destruction, that fading away, that giving up, that cessation, that relinquishment of the craving and the desire for that which you put together, lump together, and call myself. That's it. So craving is the builder of the house. He says form is non-self. Feeling is non-self. Perception is non-self. Consciousness is non-self. Form, feeling, perception, consciousness. And thoughts, non-self. All of this is impermanent. It comes and it goes. But there is something when all of that falls away that actually is us. And he says that we should find that. And when we do, we will be free. So we have to be careful about our words and our understandings around self and non-self. And we saw a wonderful Dharma movie last night. It was so enjoyable to hear everyone's comments and what they got from it. It was so instructive. I learned so much last night because everyone touches the Dharma from a different side and a different perspective. And the one who didn't want to come last night (laughs) was the one we gave her to. She gave, she it was this, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we gave it to her, and, you know, and it was just so amazing, but she didn't want to come, because she didn't want to, like, feel like being put, like, on the spot in an intimate situation, because she's growing and developing in intimacy, you know, where where she won't be hurt, because the heart has been wounded, and we're saying it's no danger here, you know, we will we will love you whole. You know, and so now, so she's, so she was sick. I'm like, that's, you feel it in your body, but that's, that's a mental sickness. So you try to come. And she came, and then she told me, oh, venerable. 
you know, and and she learned something about herself, her ability to like make an assessment about things, that to perceive something, to understand something deeply, to know something about Dharma that frees her. You see, but this is a work each one of us has to do for ourselves. And when it happens, all of us benefit because we are truly interconnected. And so the wisdom that was shared last night after the movie, it was truly wonderful. And I I thank you for it. And so this simple thing, we spend our last five minutes just getting the, you know, lots of things might happen ultimately. You know, there was one time there was so many bells and whistles going on in there. I didn't know what to do. It was like a, like a, I don't know. Fireworks show, exposition, transporting. It was some of everything happening in there. But it's almost as if the silence is you. It's almost as if not the nothingness, but the no thingness, which is. That space out of which everything manifests, that is you. Touching it, different teachers have explained it different ways. Given us different sides of the elephant to touch, to get a, a full idea. But if we can trust the Dharma and have some confidence, He said, he used the word fragile. He said, form is fragile. Feeling is fragile. And you know, it's true. We are so fragile. But when we get into this space, we just see form as form. (laughs) A feeling as a feeling. You know, a thought as a thought. And I can put it up against what I know about the Dharma and know the trajectory that I should take. And this is the investigation. Investigation, you know, brings with it trial and error. You know? You, that's how discoveries are made. And then one day you say, Eureka, I got this, the right combination. And you put that, and that one little thing is fixed. Then another little thing over here, and another little thing over here. And one day, if we live long enough, um, being diligent in our cultivation, we'll have all the pieces of the puzzle and we'll see the full picture. But in the meantime, we'll find ourselves becoming stronger, more content. We'll be durable. We'll be able to tolerate a fault. We'll be able to overlook a slight. We'll be able to accept responsibility when we don't make the cut. And we can just say, my bad, I messed up right there. We can be able, you know, just the freedom to be able to do these things, you know, and not be afraid of the consequence. And the consequence is not always, you know, like because you fessed up, you know, then everything's going to be okay. You might have to go through the repercussion of that. And it might not be 
comfortable or pleasant. But this all goes with getting out of the kiddie pool. Uh, and then soon you'll be able, you'll be able to help others. You know, you can guide others not with actually outwardly doing something. You can guide others by your own conduct. Yeah, your own conduct. You can, instead of being the barometer that re- registers the pressure or the, or, or the uh, thermometer that measures the temperature, you can be the thermostat that sets it. You can, you choose. You choose. But this is the wonderful opportunity that the Dharma offers. Yeah. So, in meditating, the very first steps is just having in oneself an idea um, that this aggregate, this heap that I call me, is not worthy to be called me. Form is not me. Feeling is not me. Perception, that's just my way of seeing things. It's not me. Consciousness is not me. Thoughts, not me. These are just manifestations that rise and fall. Like the wave cresting in an ocean. But there's really no wave that is permanent and concrete can be I that that you see cresting is still ocean. But as conditions hit it, it causes a temporary appearance. Whatever you might be going through in your life today, a temporary appearance. The way you might be thinking about something at this moment, a temporary arising. The view that we are holding about something. The mind can change when more information comes in or we decide it's too much to keep holding on to this. And it will cease to exist. But there is something that is there. And to apprehend it, we must move beyond the realm of phenomena that is available to us here and now in this life. The Buddha said, I'm teaching you this much when he scooped up leaves in a forest. He said, but I know this much. So, uh, what will you know? What will constitute your great awakening? Will it be this much? Or will it be this much? It's up to you. So when you're at home practicing this week, he gave the many different meditation subjects. And he gave some different ways of uh, instructing in meditation. But in developing concentration, pretty much he was set each place. There was a discourse on it. Of course, we don't know how much of this he really said. This, this was 2,500 years ago. Stuff wasn't even written down for 500. 
And then when they did it, they changed it to its own language that the Buddha didn't even speak Pali, okay? So I'm not learning much of it. But, but there it is. See what we can do with what we have. And I tell you, if you reach far enough, touch far enough inside, then the part of you that is connected to ultimate reality, where all the wisdom lies. It's like a feeder, you know, like a siphon. Like uh, when I was young, I used to run out of gas a lot for my car. You know, so we, so we were always having to do something, you know, to get the car running again. Okay, but it's like that, and you start sucking on that hose, you know, and you gotta take your mouth off soon enough though. It ain't gonna be pretty. But, you know, you, you get, you get it started. And then you take some from your friend's car and put it in your car. You know, gasoline was only 33 cents then. You know, and you get in your car and you get enough gas to go to the gas station. So that's what I'm talking about. We can pull up enough within ourselves. You know, and it will start to lighten the path. And we can see not everything, but we can see enough to just take the next step. That's all that's required. Just take the next step for you. So he says, just getting in a place and firmly establishing in one's mind that all of the appearances that are present for me have been uh has been put together through faulty mechanisms mechanisms that don't tell the whole story and so for now i set aside what i do know i set aside i lay down my conceptualizing mind i give up the conceit i am the pride of life and i just sit Emptying the mind and turning the mind to the breath. Now, the breath is actually something that you feel. So it doesn't really take any kind of thinking about the breath. But the reason why he adds thinking is to help still the mind. So he says, turn your attention to the breath. Just breathing in and breathing out. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to hold it. You don't have to slow it down. It will slow down by itself when you turn your attention to it. It says just developing an interest in it. Just you and the breath right now. And as soon as we do, we become hyper alert of other things. Like there may be feeling in the body. Uh, um, Maybe a sense of jitteriness. Maybe we feel the heat in the body. We suddenly hear the raindrops. They're louder. 
we can almost get a sense of the solidity of the rain as it hits the deck. It encounters the hardness. We can sense in some way an expansion that we are tethered to the rain. We're tethered to the sounds. We're tethered to all of these elements, the hardness. We can feel it in our sits bones. The air. We pick it up on the inhalation. The water, the exterior water, the raindrops, the interior water, same frequency, same vibration, just external water, internal water. So we're actually becoming more vibrant, not less. If we're paying attention, pay attention. And we just know if we're taking a long breath or a short breath, we just know if the breath is fine or whether it's coarse. We just know this directly. And now we know whether there is some tightness or tension in our body because we can feel it. We're connected with the feeling of tightness or tension. And wherever we feel that, we make a deliberate now intent to just relax it. There's tightness in the brow, tightness in the cheek, tightness in the shoulders. Maybe our shoulders now suddenly feel like they're hunched. Then we just relax. Any place that we feel tense or tightness, just relaxing that body part. And keeping your awareness on the breath, just in and out. And as we do that, we have a sense 
we do have a sense of fading away. At the moment, it's not all about me. At the moment, there is just a kind of peace that manifests by its own accord. And we get to experience and to know that. And we keep our attention on the breath until there's a sense of joy that begins to arise. That joy comes from the confidence of steadiness. And the simplicity of this And gradually, little by little, we extend the time of the sitting. Three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, thirty minutes, one hour if you want, two hours, however long you want. And when you find yourself sitting for at least an hour, then you, it would be good for you to start setting your time, your intention, how long you'll sit. And the mind will keep track. It'll just buzz you. Say two hours, it'll buzz you two hours. One hour, you'll say one hour is up. You'll get to know. Okay, so now when we come out of that space and we come back to like our business we have to take care of, right? But we touch a kind of stillness that detaches us from the full throttle influence of the moment or whatever we're dealing with. And we find another place that we can abide. Then after a while, you don't have to go into meditation to abide. You don't have to like assume the posture to do that. You can, you just know where it is and you go, you go there with it. Or when you see yourself starting to spin out, if you will get out of yourself, choose to, choose to, then you can go right there. Sometimes we choose to, sometimes we don't. But more and more, we will choose to, the more and more we become acquainted with this way of being in the world. Now, something happens later, and that's for another day, so I'm ending right now. Uh, but something happens later with this. Once this part has been, uh, uh, yes, would you say? Cultivated, yes. Once this has been cultivated, 
And that's where you can access because in that field, there is information. You got to be on the right frequency, though. Remember, I talked Tuesday about, you know, passing through object. You have to be on the same frequency with the object. And so it's like that. There's information. This whole, the whole universe is teeming with information. But the information is on its own frequency. And you have to tap into it. When I was fasting and went through, the only way I could eat was I had to find uh, uh, Master, uh, Master uh, Chinyan's frequency. She would say, lunch will be served at 9.30. That wasn't the time. That was the frequency. And I had to find that frequency to eat. Um, There's a lot, you know. We decide what's important. May you be well, happy, and peaceful. May no harm come to you, no danger. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.